what I need to do more of is tell my story in a thoughtful, succinct way. Because I think when we tell our stories, we give other people permission to tell their stories. And not that they need permission, but sometimes that representation is helpful and it gives you the nudge that you need to speak your own truth. Welcome to Beyond Religion, a podcast about unconfined spirituality. I'm your host, Elizabeth Lott. In today's episode, I tell you a little bit about myself and how I've landed on this idea to put yet another podcast out into the world. I have no idea where all of this is going or for how long, but I'm committed to at least 12 episodes, 10 of which are conversations with friends and colleagues who are also asking big and beautiful questions about spirit energy, divinity, the universe, elves, magic, truth, you name it. We're on a journey, and I hope you'll join us as we consider spirituality beyond religion. It's a rainy day here in New Orleans as I record this, and I am really delighted to be moving into episode two and sharing a friend with you today. Before I do that, thanks to those of you who've reached out. Thanks to those of you who listened to the sort of mini episode introduction last week. Um, Already, I'm warmed and heartened by the response. Um, So many of you reaching out and saying, It's like you're reading my mind, like you're listening in on my conversation. This is what my friends and I are talking about. Um, It's really affirming this instinct I have to kind of process my process out loud, which is um, risky and vulnerable. Um, So thank you. Thank you for showing up with me and um, wanting more. So welcome back to Beyond Religion. I'm excited to introduce episode two and my dear, dear friend, Susanna. If you already know her, then you already love her. And if you're meeting her for the first time, then you are the lucky one. Susanna Raffield is a Baptist minister turned home bartender. She and her wife, Rhonda Stringfellow, are the creators and owners of Camp Craft Cocktails. Camp began with popsicles, a 1969 camper food truck, and a cross-country road trip. After towing thousands of their handcrafted Bold City Pops and their vintage camper to the 2016 Desert Trip Music Festival in California, Susanna and Rhonda knew they wanted to build even more community. So they deconstructed favorite pop recipes to pivot toward a shippable product. The concept of working in community was ignited during their years as camp staff distilling down all that they loved from their tenure as camp directors to the perfect name and mission for their business, Camp Craft Cocktails was born on I-10 with flavors that beg to be shared and a soul for creating community. Camp is more than cocktails. It's a mission to build longer tables where everyone is welcome and everyone belongs. I am confident in hearing her story, you will find more than a bit of your own. I'll drop a link to Campcraft Cocktails in the show notes as well as their Instagram handle. Enjoy this conversation with Susanna about her journey beyond religion. First, thank you for doing this. You're I'm welcome. excited. You're the first. For, I'm the first one. You are. This is really fun. 
I'm only going to do 12 episodes because I want to see if I like it and if this is really going somewhere. But um, I'm pumped about the the 12 episodes. So you're you're number one, Susanna. I am so honored. I'm not kidding. Like, thank you. It's super exciting. Well, okay. So I've been thinking back. We met somewhere in the early 2000s, connected to the church where we were both employed. I I was leaving and then you came in and then you left and I came back in. So we were, you said that you were the filling of the Oreo that I, I was yeah. side cookies, right? Yeah, exactly. And I can remember feeling really threatened by you. Like she's so good and she's like so talented that they're, they're going to love her so much that it'll replace me. And they can't possibly love both of us, which I look back on now and think that is old patriarchal scarcity mindset, right? That there can only be one beloved woman in the system. Uh, but it means that I missed out on you for two And the first time I really remember us talking was when you came to Richmond because you were touring with a musician and helping maybe arrange her bookings or something. I don't even know. I wasn't arranging her bookings, but I was selling merch for her. Okay. All right. So I just remember we got to sit next to each other and talk. And I feel like that was kind of the beginning of us really cultivating a friendship. And then it has taken off over the past decade. Um, so I'm grateful for that. And also I feel like there's still a lot that I don't know. So I want to kind of start at the beginning. Um, I want to start with your religious upbringing. You were born and raised in Florida in the panhandle. Yes. What are some of your earliest memories of traditional religion and that kind of like that's that's edge of Bible belt, but then Florida is moving on to being its own thing too. Well, you know, the panhandle is different than other parts of Florida. Right. We have like three states in one, I think. So uh, the panhandle is, I would say, definitely the most conservative of our state. Um, You know, religion is a huge part of everyday life, or it was when I was growing up. So even though I was in Florida, which people think, like a vacation state, like we're just miles from Alabama and Georgia, you know, yeah. literally. Um, so my, my parents, I, I guess my mom was definitely, uh, someone that church was really important to her family and to her, my dad as well. Although my dad wasn't, um, devout in any way. And then I started going to church with my grandparents, both sets. So my mom's parents were Southern Baptist. My dad's parents were Assembly of God. So I got like a a really interesting mix. Um, So on Saturdays, I would go to church with my grandparents because they had church on Saturday nights. And then on Sundays, go to church with my mom's parents. And I think I felt most at home in the church of my maternal grandparents. Mm. Uh, definitely just felt like I fit there, enjoyed it. It was a, a wonderful part of my weekend growing up. Like yeah. my grandfather would pick me up on Sunday morning or I'd spend the night with them and we'd go to church. Let me back up and say some of my very first memories of, of 
what I call God, um, are from nature. So we lived on the bay and um, just out from the city a bit. And I can remember as a kid, like really young, like three and four, just staring up at the night sky and all of the stars and thinking that I was a part of this world that God had created. And somehow, like, I just knew that it was creation and I was in awe of that. Mm. So any part of church that resonated with me in that creation way um, just sealed the deal. (laughs) But that was my first thought of God was actually just basic, beautiful nature. And then um, I loved my grandparents very, very much. And so wherever they were, I wanted to be too. So then it it became just my norm to be at church with them. My grandmother was my GA teacher. Mm. And um, so Southern Baptist, you know, uh, a woman's program stood for okay. girls in action. And we, you know, ate a lot of interesting food from around the world and sang songs and played games. And I don't know, that's what I saw it as then um, was just something lovely. And I love to travel. I love to hear about new places. And it didn't feel restrictive at all to me then. It felt like it was uh, introducing you to this world that was big. Yeah. 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 It felt more like freedom than a restriction. Interesting. And was was that your primary social identity was being with church people or does it continue to be that was a weekend thing with grandparents and separate from the Monday through Friday life? Um, my grandparents church was small, so it wasn't like there were a few people maybe that I went to elementary school with that also went to church with their grandparents, but no more than two. So um it was social, but it wasn't primarily the yeah. only social. Yeah, I'm just thinking we the the church I grew up in was the really traditional Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Sometimes we came back for things on Saturday, and there were at least two, if not three times a year that we were going for something every day. And that that really became the primary place where I felt like I was most fully myself, uh, which is my own story to get into, but I'm, I'm just so curious about that. Like, how are we formed and where, where are identities um, being affirmed? Um, so I wonder, you went from weekend and GAs and hearing about this great big world to expressing formally at some point, some kind of call to ministry. Um, for me, that public call to ministry thing was equal parts true telling, describing something I was really feeling, but also very much securing my spot as a gold star earning church girl. Um, Mm -hmm. Does that resonate with you at all? Or was your experience different from that? Mine was a little different. Um, And let me say like my formative years, church was what I did with my grandparents on the weekend. And then when I um, was in middle school, I joined a different church that my friends went to that was larger, that had more programming. And then I was there three times a week, at least, you know, so then through middle school, definitely high school, um, when I was able to drive, that was helpful. Then when I was able to drive and go myself, definitely all the time. I think when I declared my call to ministry 
or when I've expressed interest in that, um, my church where I grew up said, maybe children's ministry, maybe you could do that. You know, like it wasn't supported because of the fact that I was a woman and I was told quickly, like, you know, women don't preach, they do this. That's right. Even though, even though sometimes that's not even the words that were coming out of our mouths, it was very quickly the response was, here are the things you can't do. Right, right. And I had a mentor at the church who was constantly preaching submission to me, like would say those words, like, you need to submit. Like, what is it that God wants you to do? Well, you need to listen. Like, I, I think I could probably still find a piece of math asking tape that she put on my notebook and she had written submit, you know? <laughs> and so I kind of felt like you just, um, you know, you just put your hands on your head. Like I definitely felt this conflicted sort of back and forth about my call because I, I knew I knew what God sounded like because my yeah. grandparents had done a really good job of nurturing me to listen for still small voices and to trust them. So thankfully, you know, they never told me, well, God wouldn't say that to you, which, you know, several people did, but they never said that. They said, trust, trust that voice. And so this one person was telling me to submit and this other, like in the voice inside of me was um, reach out, like go for it. Like, who are you supposed to be? And I felt, I mean, I can, I still have journals from those time periods and I can look back and it's like, she wants me to submit, but I don't understand. I don't understand. Submit to whom? To, su- to submit to the God. To God. Okay. To God, to whoever the leader was, to, you know, to a man, basically, <laughs> you know, God like damn. God, damn. Yeah. God, the it. man, I should submit to God, the man. And, um, but the problem was, Like I just had in those formative years, the people who loved me did a really good job of saying, listen, listen for God and do what, do what that voice says, you know? So I felt, I felt confident as I got older, I felt confident in what I heard. And, um, I mean, it was confusing for the people that you think love you and, you know, your church members are are supposed to know they're older, they're wiser, but you know, I kept doing, I kept moving in the direction of, okay, I know I want to be a minister. So let's just walk that way and see what happens. My story is similar and people who I felt were tasked with loving me and affirming me and being mentors to me, very quickly putting uh, guardrails up about well, you can do this, but you can't do that. Um, and I wonder what what was it in us that pushed through that anyway? Do you want me to answer? Yeah, what do you, I mean, do you, I mean, for me, I can I mean, say like part of it is that I'm stubborn and part of it is that I don't like to be told what I can't do. But then there was also this, this pull that still is almost uh, m- magnetic and visceral and towards truth-telling and mystery. And I guess for me, the only way I could imagine honoring that pull would be to do it within the confines of the church. I think for me, 
if you give someone the formula, at least this is my thinking, like here is, let me introduce you to how to listen to God. And also like, remember I mentioned, like I knew even as like a three-year-old that I'm looking at the sky and I felt connected in spiritual ways, you know, like, like it, if somebody said, what's your first memory of God? I would say looking up at the night sky as a three-year-old, like, absolutely. So I think I had these faithful grandparents on my mother's side, you know, who said, let's, this is what God sounds like. Mm -hmm. And so then I'm like, okay, I hear God telling me to do this. And God's voice um, superseded all the rest. And the in-between part was really hard because that, that's like the socio, social, cultural norms, you know, yeah. but I knew, and maybe it is stubborn, you know, maybe it's part of that. But I also thought, who am I not to listen to God? Yeah. Like, why would I listen to you? Tell me what you think God is telling me. I can just listen to what God is telling me. Yeah. Um, and then I just looked for opportunities with people who felt like I did, you know, when I was able to move beyond the bounds of just my small First Baptist Church high school upbringing. So how, how old were you when you started saying out loud that you felt called to be, were you saying you felt called to be a minister? Were you talking about missions? Um, well, I, first I said minister, and then they said, you might want to do children's ministry instead. And I was like, I don't know if I want to do children's ministry. So maybe I'll be missionary. Okay. You know, where I can do what I want to do when nobody's watching. <laughs> like, yeah. you, I, I'm putting words in your mouth, but I, I'm guessing you, like me, had been exposed to this alternate path of strong, creative, independent women who somehow, because they weren't in the United States, yes. got to travel the world and be pastors. We just didn't call them that. Yes. And the, and so we, as children, were in GAs and then in Act Teens, were being told their stories. and Right really were raised on them. Exactly. It was the representation that I had seen. Yeah, that's really, I haven't thought about that before because I knew what God's voice sounded like. I knew what God wanted me to do, but I was still bound by what was possible within my group of Christians. <laughs> you know, yeah. I didn't know there was anything else. And I, I did appreciate this um, network that I, I was a part of. You know, I knew how to work within my boundaries, but I was pushing them, but I still was working within them. I hadn't thought about that. So this process is starting for you in high school as you're thinking about choosing college? Um, early, like I can remember writing off to the, at the time, the farm mission board as like a freshman, maybe an eighth grader, but I know for sure I was getting the commission magazine when I was in ninth grade. <laughs> that is intense. I, I, that is intense. I'm thinking about um, Carrie Bradshaw on Sex in the City <laughs> saying, you know, that she's been getting Vogue magazine that's like sixth grade or something. And, yeah. and here we are with the church version of that. Oh. Yeah. yeah, it is kind of scary. So did you go straight? So you went to Sanford for all four years? No, I no. Um, I went to our to my community college in my hometown for two and then transferred to Samford as a junior. And then did you go straight from there to Beeson? Yes. 
Okay. So I, um, so Beeson Divinity School, which was established in the 1990s at Sanford University, also my alma mater. Um, in thinking about your religious training, I recognize you chose a place that was barely affirming of women, much <laughs> less queer affirming. Yeah. And I wonder how intentional was that choice at the time? What do you mean by intentional? Intentional like, towards you, which part? Well, yeah, that's a good question. I guess I'm thinking, were you picking a place because of geography? Were you picking a place because this really felt like the school where you wanted formation? Or did you feel like you wanted that sort of more traditional evangelical voice? What were the what were the factors that went into how you chose your theological education? Well, I'll back up and say. I was a, a, I did camp counselor life, you know, throughout my college years. And I was a GA camp counselor with Florida. And I met a friend of mine named Jennifer Lockamy, who went to Stanford. And so I did GA, she was from Jacksonville. I was from Panama City, but, you know, we did camp together and she just kept talking about how great Stanford was. And then, um, I wasn't sure where I was going to go after community college. So I went up to visit her and fell in love with Birmingham. I fell in love with the school and decided, hey, I need to go there. So there wasn't a lot of like, if I could do it all over, I would do it so differently. But I just didn't, I didn't know any better. Like people, even in my, in my high school, you know, I didn't have a guidance counselor saying, hey, where are you thinking you'd like to go? Let's look at your SATs. Like it was just people went to community college and then they figured it out from there. So um, I made my choice based on friendship. Yeah. And then as far as, as divinity school goes, I think I'd only been in, in Birmingham for two years. Um, I loved it. I loved my church. I loved this community that was forming, um, in my life. And if I had gone, if I could have gone anywhere, I would have loved to have gone to, um, Bill Leonard seminary. Why can't I think of it? Wake. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. But Wake wasn't open yet. You know, he had just left. That was like 96, 97. Yeah. Yeah. So I graduated in 97. I think Leonard like left that year and, so there wasn't a place for me to go to and I didn't want to wait. And Beeson had this incredible endowment where 80% of my tuition was covered. Wow. Um, and when I met with admissions, they said, yes, we, you know, we're interdenominational. We have, you know, women who are Episcopal ministers who come, you know, we're open to whatever. I think yeah, basically he lied. <laughs> <laughs> I was basically, the presentation was maybe different than the reality. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, I love Birmingham. It's in my price range. I can do this. So that's how I chose Visa. And did global women come out of that time? What's the what's the time span between graduating 97 and starting global women? I graduated in 97, then I started Beeson in January of 98. Global women didn't start until uh November 2000 2001 something like that so there were some years in there 
I'm trying to put together that like late 90s, early 2000s period in your life and wondering um, what what was the impetus for global women? What mm-hmm. what what were you hoping to create? And I think it it already starts to speak to your entrepreneurial spirit that in, in the late 90s, early 2000s, you're starting to imagine creating this space for women to embody their callings. So I will say, um, while I was at Beeson, I got a call from the executive director of Georgia Women's Missionary Union, who said, hey, we need a camp director for Georgia WMU camps. You know, what do you think? And um, I said, let's do this. You know, we spoke, we interviewed, whatever. So I got the job. And I started driving, you know, Beeson, there's no class on Monday because a lot of students are full-time pastors. And so they gave them Monday off, you know, so they could go back and forth from wherever they lived and take a, take a rest. But, um, I would drive to Atlanta on Friday afternoons and stay through Monday evening and come back and do class Tuesday through Thursday. And then I would go back and interview staff and build the curriculum and the program. And I did that for two years and really fell in love with camp again, you know, and being a part of young women's lives, you know, all the way from college to third graders, you know, so we had staff and we had campers and then I was full-time in the summer. And through that process, I started gathering um, folks like Leanne Gunter Johns and Lori Crow Burgess. And they were, we were all on staff together. And at the end of camp every season, you know, we would say, what? We want to continue to do things together and we want to grow and be ministers and we're hearing no over here and yes over here. And it just, again, it felt like a way to fly under the radar was to do missions. Mm -hmm. Um, But let me also say, like after my first year of leading this camp in North Georgia, the executive director called me into her office and said, um, the, I don't know what they're called anymore. I've lost all the language, but like the head of the Georgia Baptist convention is asking me why one, you raised so much money for missions and two, we have so few salvations <laughs> like, Oh, wow. Uh-huh. Okay. So, okay. and I, it's because I wasn't doing a traditional altar call. You know, I would just get up on Thursday nights and say, I would love to hear how, how you've seen God at camp this week. You know, yeah. how have you seen God? You know, what is God speaking? Like, is God speaking to you? If so, what is God saying? You know, that was the most of what I would say. Yeah. And then, I, you know, talk to the girls and um, like I invited Sarah Shelton to come both summers that I was there and she came and spent the week and was like, you know, a missionary, but everybody knew she was a pastor, but yeah. my executive director wasn't there. So she didn't know. She just knew that there was a missionary there, you know? And so we, every week, you know, the two weeks that Sarah was there, we would have campers say, we want to be a pastor. Like we, we want to yeah. be a pastor. We want to be, you know, it was representation. Yeah. And so Barbara, you know, called me in her office and said, 
what's up? Like, why are your numbers low on salvation? And why are numbers low on salvations? I just have to. Yeah. Like it's a sweatshop and you're cranking out prom dresses. Yeah. But then we would raise so much money for missions because I, you know, we talk about the work that these people were doing wherever we were trying to raise the money for. And I don't know. So I was a bad missionary, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, so then I realized after my second summer, I just thought I can't work for the Georgia Baptist convention anymore. Like there, I can't be who I'm supposed to be and work for them. But I really like, it's when I think back to all the jobs that I've quit, (laughs) like I'm kind of sad about it because it was, I loved it. It was one of my favorite jobs ever working with staff to build this program. And then, you know, I just, I love third through 12th graders. I love them. I love spending the week with them and doing incredible activities together. Like it was a wonderful job, but I knew that I was going to get fired if I didn't leave, probably if I didn't stay in line or leave. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, talking about camp is really making me think about like all the fantastic church camp experiences that I had. That 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 was as significant as as being at the church so many days of the week as I was as a kid. Um, and the youth camp that I went to was in Panama City. Oh, it was really close to what is the PCA Gulf Treat something or I can't uh-huh. remember. I know what you're talking about. Anyway, we had to, we had to walk. It wasn't right on the water. So we had to walk to get to the water, but it wasn't too far away. Maybe Gulf Treat was the name of the place where we were staying, but we passed some other where PCA did their summer. You know what I'm talking about? Like you you take a job and pretend like you're just working at the parking deck, but really your job is to get everybody saved at the parking deck. Because they came to our church, like the summer staffers. Yes. Not all of them. They were, because there were so many. But some would come to our church. But yeah, I know what you're talking about. I just beach reach or I can't remember what it's called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're, you know, we're thinking about the same thing. Um, And and I did GA camp going to Citronelle, Alabama, Mm -hmm. out in the woods and lots of, uh, lots of amazing memories of just walking the trails in the woods and, and hearing so many stories about women. It's, it's amazing to me to think back on it now. I haven't ever thought of it this way. How many women, they were all dead, of course. I mean, they, they weren't real live women that we could look at now, but especially, you know, the two icons were Lottie Moon and Annie Armstrong that we talked about them all the time. They were they were bookends to our year of, of telling their stories. So, of course, we began to identify as, uh, as Baptist women religious. I'm in a very Catholic town where where the women religious have their category. And uh, of course we were inspired by them. I know that there were a lot of years in between Beeson, Global Women, where you are now. There was there was some Rouge Lacan or something. There was, a, there was some time in, in Europe um, and the path beyond religion that has taken you to the place where you are now has been winding to this place where you're a wife, a mom, an entrepreneur. But from the outside looking in, this process for you of whether it's de-identifying with religion or shifting in your understanding of yourself as a Baptist woman religious, 
it has seemed gradual and natural. It has seemed organic and meant to be. And I, I wonder how close to accurate am I? Do you think over the past 20 years that it has been those things or has it been more of a struggle? How would you describe these decades? Hmm. I mean, I think you're accurate in saying that it's been gradual and natural. I think it's been, I mean, what you don't see is, you know, just the heartache too. The the deconstruction is hard and <laughs> painful. And I think there were a lot of those years too, even though, I mean, even that's gradual, right? You know, it starts when the mentor at my church would say submit and I would say, okay, but then go home and write, what does that even mean? And why wouldn't God want me to speak? You know, why, why would God want me to be quiet? I don't understand how that, um, to use churchy language, like serves the kingdom at all. And then I, so I graduated, you know, from Beeson, worked at Baptist Church of the Covenant for a year and that it was during that year that we were building Global Women. And then at the end of that Global Women, they were able to hire me. And so that's when I moved from BCOC to working full-time with Global Women until 2005. And then in 2005, I started my PhD work at the International Baptist Theological Seminary in Prague, which you referenced as Ruchlikon because it used to be in Ruchlikon, Switzerland, but they had moved. Um, and I started studying maternal health and body theology. Oh, and my, yeah. Yeah. And so my plan was to get my PhD and then I would be more hireable in my mind mm-hmm. um, to do the things that I wanted to do, <laughs> whatever that was. My biggest deconstruction or some of the biggest deconstruction came out of my IBTS experience um, because I don't know, that's also when I had moved back to Florida and I was working at the boarding school. Okay. So that with the intent to complete my dissertation. So I'd done all the coursework and I just had to write it. And I was struggling because everything I presented wasn't probably, it wasn't, um, it was too personal. Like mm-hmm. I, I I wasn't able to write academically about this subject because I thought I, I want to write about the subject, but I want to understand it. And I want, I was writing like a pastor, not a theologian. Was there a concrete moment of, I can't do this anymore. This is fitting a square peg into a round hole or was it a series of moments? There was a concrete moment. And it was, it was like a breakup, you know, it was just gut wrenching. I was there in Prague. I met with um, the head of the department, not my major professor, but the head of the department. And he just said, if you can't, you know, turn in X number of pages by this date, like we're going to have to pause your study. And um, I couldn't, and I knew I couldn't do it because I didn't, I didn't want to put a square peg in a round hole anymore, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I also just, I was writing about um, Rachel. She was my 
biblical conversant partner on this maternal health and body theology path of study that I was on. And I remember reading like, well, of course, I mean, I've read her story constantly, but one day I'm just reading about how Jacob and the caravan, they just left her on the side of the road dead, you know, Mm -hmm. after she has her baby who is alive and then they, she was considered unclean and they just left her. And I mean, I'm getting teary right now thinking about it. I just thought, why do I want to be a part of this group that used Rachel like a a vessel, you know, and that's it. They just needed her body to produce the patriarchy. It wasn't, you know, and then you're good. You gave us what we needed and we don't need you anymore. And they didn't even have the, the courage or the, I think it was courage because it, it was, um, you know, it would have been taboo to carry her dead, bloody, maternally unhealthy body all the way to their new promised land and bury her with the ancestors. So, you know, I just thought, fuck you. Like, let me change that and say, I just thought (laughs) I'm here. I, I'm, I'm not. I am not at your service anymore. Like I will not, I will not speak your message. I can't. How can I? You left her and you're going to leave me too, which is exactly what had been done like over and over and over again. I was like this, I am Rachel. I am, you're leaving me and I'm just watching your caravan. Like, and I'm being metaphorical now. So the pulpit, the opportunity, the whatever it was, is just, you know, I'm in your rearview mirror, Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, and you got what you needed, and you're moving on. And I'm saying, hey, there's no more room in your caravan. Sorry, <laughs> we got your picture on our posters for our fundraising, so yeah. we don't need yeah. you. Anymore. Just yeah. like I'm, I don't know. It's kind of like in the Devil Wears Prada in the movie, you know, where she just throws her cell phone in the in the fountain and walks away at the end, you know, it it just, it felt like, no, no more. You don't get any more of me. Um, and I meant it, but of course it took years before they didn't get any more of me because I, it it was so ingrained, like they were my people, you know, like I kept thinking about that verse in scripture. Is it Peter who says, you know, Jesus says, are you going to leave me too? And Mm -hmm. Is it Peter who says, where would I go? You alone, you alone hold the keys. Like, where would I go? And I just kept thinking, where would I go? Like, there's no denomination or religion that that is free from patriarchy. Not a single one. And at least, you know, the devil you know is better than the one you don't. Like, I just kept thinking that. I love the the metaphor of Rachel being left dead on the road. She'd served her purpose for the patriarchy. Um, I have often said to you in our conversations that looking back 25 years into being a minister in the church now, it'll be 25 later this year, I often feel like the church, and I'm not picking on one particular church, I'm talking about an institution, is an abusive partner. And I've 
I watched that that partner be abusive with other people and thought, well, it's going to be different when it's me. It's going to be different when it's me. And um, and how many times do I continue to go back to a partner who um, doesn't value me, doesn't see my worth, will continue to exploit me? Um, and that that is an ongoing heartbreak of again and again and again, how many times can my heart be broken by, by this institution that I have um, stayed faithful to? And I, I'm, I'm sometimes not sure why. Yeah. Because I think we conflate the two, you know, we've been taught, this is what God looks like. Yeah. And God looks like, you know, here's the church, the people in the church. Yeah. Like I, God looks like the, like your congregation or God looks like Wednesday night supper or God looks like a baptism of your best friend's kid. Like, I don't know. And I, then I go back to my first thought of God, which was starry night. Yeah. And I'm thankful that I, God, like, I'm thankful that that little still small voice was there. I'm thinking about the, the language of where else would I go? And then the psalm that says, where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee from your presence, right? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I go to Sheol, you're there. And already we're talking about a diminishing of, the psalmist is talking about this expansive presence of the divine. And then we get to this moment with Jesus that is, I, I don't. I don't know what else I would do if I weren't on this path with you. And then we get to a much more narrow sense of the abusive partner that church can be. Uh, well, where else are you going to go? Who yeah. else is going to take Who's you? Who's going to take care of you? That's right. Yes, exactly. Who else will take you? God. Yes, I haven't flipped it and thought about. Yes, that's exactly that's exactly what it is. Like you need to be here because the these are your people and it's much yeah. harder out there. And yeah, it's the way to control for sure. So um, I wonder looking back, even knowing that we've skipped a lot, looking back at all of these systems and structures that have shaped us, can you parse out what seems most true still for you? Are there the threads that are, are that go through all of it? Um, and what feels most untrue that you have let go of that's been part of that deconstructing? Who was it? Is it Eckhart? I don't know. Who, who said, um, it is a lie, any talk of God that does not, that isn't love. You know, mm-hmm. I kind of use that lens a lot, but I honestly, like anything that's the system, like, and that's hard to define, but you know it when you see it, but anything that's the system. So um, I, I've left that in, I don't know. I think I'm, it's still too early for me to say anything good about it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just trying to think it, if we go back to those women that we we were talking about, like the missionaries that were our representation, mm-hmm. because the only time I saw someone in a pulpit growing up was focus on WMU week yeah. or, you know, that was it. And it's like, wow, look at so, you know, the, I, I, the first time I heard a woman preach was Sarah Shelton at Convo at Samford, wow. you know, well, it wasn't even Convo. It was whatever happened in the, uh, at night. Oh, like, Quest. Quest. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. Quest. Mine was Colleen Burroughs at Passport 1995. Okay. 
Well, mine would have been 95, 96 at Sanford at Quest. But those women, like, I think a lot of women that we uphold that went to other countries to do God's work, I think we're probably lesbians. Yeah. (laughs) Like, and they, like I, they were trying to be able to do what they were called to do without the system controlling all of it. So at well, first and they were women who were not going to submit. And so they were making the system work for them that they could go to what they perceived to be the wild places that were places that were big enough to hold them because the right. systems here were too small. Right. Absolutely. And it doesn't make them like some of them were horrible people, yeah. you know, it doesn't, it doesn't make mean them that, that they were free from patriarchy because they were still participating in it. Um, oh, totally. it, was the, it was the air they breathed and they were still participating in colonialism. Also, yes, Lottie the Moon, horribly racist yeah. um, within the confines of this country. I'm not sure how she was in the others, but I mean, she had been raised to be so and she hadn't chosen anything different. So, um, but like the letters I read, I just am shocked, just shocked. Now, I think Lottie was a lesbian. I think moving to China was her way to be free. Yeah. So there I said it. <laughs> so I'm wondering, so the, the unfolding of your life over the past decade, especially, has really been about your getting free. And I wonder what surprises you most about the way your life has unfolded. Huh. <laughs> Wow, that that is hard to know what is the most surprising because there's so many surprises. Yeah. Um, I'm surprised that I own a company that is a toolkit for alcohol. Like uh-huh. completely shocked at that. Um, I'm surprised that I'm a lesbian. Like so surprised. Surprise! Surprise! <laughs> you have a lesbian. Um. Yeah. Like, and I'm also surprised at how I didn't know that I was like, that's probably equally maddening and shocking because I just think how ingrained I was in this system that I didn't even know that it was an option. Yeah. I, I honestly, like, I didn't think it was possible. Like I, and then I just thought, you know, my pickiness and my singleness was um, part of my devotion, you know, like, oh, I'm so devoted. Yeah, well, I mean, in in a system (laughs) where it's like celibacy really gets lifted up is this like honorable way, like we're not, we're not people with a monastic tradition, us Protestants, but we still got very, very close to it with WMU in particular. Yeah. Yeah, I see how, um, we were in a system that did not want us to ask, what do I want? What do I need? And if we think back to the beginnings of WMU and Annie and Lottie and those women, like I think Annie was a lesbian too. I I think they were subconsciously building this group where they could be safe and do what they need. I don't mean like sexually. I mean, um, they didn't have to get married. Right and pretend to be a lovely wife and mom like some some did and they were they wanted children more than they wanted their um 
their freedom sexually. But I I just, I think they built up the system in a way, this is probably like, I would make so many WMU people mad, but most of them are dead. So So now in your professional life, you're talking about slower sips and longer tables. And I would love to hear how Camp Craft came to be. I would love to tell you. So I was living here in Jacksonville, Florida, um, working a job at a private boarding school so I could write my dissertation, you know, so was writing about Rachel during the day. I was with ninth, well, really seventh through 12th graders at night as their, their resident parent, you know, as a dorm mom, loved it. It, it really was wonderful to be back with that age group because I think I mentioned earlier, you know, it felt like camp through the process of being there. That's when I decided I can't do this dissertation anymore. I would say like two years into my work there, I realized like I came here to write a dissertation, but I'm falling in love with this work, you know, and I'm loving working with these young women and I am ministering in ways that I've never, you know, like the access that I have to their lives it was beautiful. Like, it's like if you could be a pastor at a, at a college or, you know, I don't know, like it was, it was like, in that period where it's such rapid mental and emotional transformation as, yes. as well as like, I, I mean, I remember saying I've always liked middle schoolers, which is such a challenging, hard group to work with. But in my years of youth ministry, the shift from entering sixth grade to leaving eighth grade is amazing. So I, I totally get that. You're witnessing metamorphosis. Yes. And um, ministering in creative ways and um, realize, okay, I don't want to write this dissertation anymore. I'm angry at at the people who are, who are wanting my writing. I'm angry at this Bible that I'm writing it from. I'm angry. Like none of this is working. And um, like over time, I fell in love with a coworker, you know, who was there and a woman, but I didn't know because again, I'm so lockstep with this script that has been, that was given to me by, you know, the SBC and by CBF and um, had no idea that I was in love until I had an idea that I was in love. But um, so that's what happened. We fell in love and realized quickly, like we can't be in love and work here. You know, we'll we'll get fired. And um, so we started, we did what you do. We started a business. (laughs) We quit our jobs and started a business. And um, that's that's how Cam got started was out of, um, we, we call it our love story. Like Mm -hmm. it really, it really was. And it was scary to leave and think what, what are we going to do? But I don't, I don't think I was as scared as Rhonda was. I mean, she has to speak for herself, but if I had to guess, like I had been doing this, like, let's go for it thing for a while and felt like, we could make it work. And I also knew instinctively that I, my family was a safety net. And I know that not everybody has that, right. you know, and that's a privilege. And I, 
um, acknowledge that. Like I knew they had my back and I, we could figure it out. Um, I come from a long line of entrepreneurs. So I thought I, I can make money doing something. I don't know. Like, I know I was just thinking everything about you that I've always known is like nomadic and entrepreneurial, both of those things. Yeah. (laughs) Here we go in next. What's the next? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I was much more afraid of staying there and having to hide our family than leaving and not having any money. And I hear parallel to the church in that too. Mm -hmm. To, To stay would be to hide on a lot of levels, in a lot of ways. Yes. And that's scary to leave. Yeah. But it's also now painful to stay. Yeah. But I definitely was still thinking that I could work in the church. Like I thought, okay, I'll find a job. I can be a minister locally. Like we we couldn't move because um, my, so we have four children together. And when we married, I, um, received three older children, like as part of my family too. It was a great bonus in life. I always wanted to have four kids, like growing up, I was like, I want four kids. I want four kids. And then, you know, uh, life didn't happen that way for me, or at least I didn't think it was going to. And then here comes Henry at 39 and three more kids. And it's, I mean, that's kind of surprising and amazing too. Like I, I'm really thankful for how that worked. Our, um, youngest at the time wasn't out of school yet and has a dad and we couldn't leave, you know, like he has family here and we had to all be a family here together. So I I knew I was, I was bound to Jacksonville for a bit, but I couldn't find a job. Like there isn't like, I'm a Baptist lesbian minister and Jacksonville didn't have any churches with work at that time for me. And I couldn't move. And um, so that was, it's just funny that even then I was still trying to seek my place in the church. I'm like, this is still possible for me. This, let me do this. And I kept, you know, putting myself out there, but my church wouldn't even ask me to read scripture you know, on a Sunday morning. So I'm not sure why I thought they were going to hire me to be their children's minister or, you know, whatever position kept coming available you know, or what, whatever the position was that was available at the time, you know, I would apply and crickets constantly. So we had to do something and we started a business. What are you dreaming of right now? You and Rhonda, as your business expands, I can tell it's growing and has taken off into maybe ways that you didn't even imagine. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I'm trying to figure out How do we build community in authentic, practical ways, period? How do we build community in helpful, authentic, practical ways? Because my experience of how you build community looks like going to church three times a week. It looks like having a Bible study. But you can gather and not mention God one time, and that's okay. (laughs) You know, you don't have to open a Bible to go to someone's house and eat a meal. Um, So for me, I kind of use our cocktail kit as the excuse to gather. And I would hope as we grow as a company that we can have resources or provide folks with a template for gathering that it doesn't have to revolve around alcohol at all. And that, you know, it's about that 
that longer table or the slower sip. You know, we don't always want to be in a crowd of people. So for me, that's your slower sip time. But everybody should be welcome at some point, you know. Um, but it's also okay to build community one-on-one. So what? as we grow, I'm looking for those opportunities. Um, we just had a, a photographer come and um, take great pictures of us having slower sips and longer tables. And um, it's a little bit of a recipe guide, even for nosh food, you know, food that you would have when you gather. Yeah. And so however we can do that. Wow. I'm kind of like going everywhere right now, but no, I hear what I hear you doing is playing in some of the language of old religious identity, but it's with this essence that is fresh and new. Sometimes it's tongue in cheek. It's always mm-hmm. deeply meaningful and soulful and honest. I think it's very much like you, it is true. There is no pretense, which is part of what makes you so wonderful that you are so much that way that you invite the others, you compel people to come and be that way in your presence. And I wonder um, in what way does the work you're doing now and the life you're living now feel like calling or vocation? Oh, it it feels it in every um, sense of that word. Like I feel that deeply. Yes. I think this is still part of my call. This is definitely part of my vocation. And I think when we, what I need to do more of is tell my story in a thoughtful, succinct way, because I think when we tell our stories, we give other people permission to tell their stories and not that they need permission, but sometimes that representation is helpful and it gives you the nudge that you need to speak your own truth. And I think camp, our business camp craft cocktails, that's a, that's the embodiment of what I just said. Like it's, it's an opportunity for someone to speak their truth. And I don't mean because they're drunk on the spirit, you know, but because they're drunk on the spirit, (laughs) we're talking like, you know, and I also think about Jesus's first miracle. If we want to take it back to religion, you know, it was turning water into wine as far as we know. And I love the part of the verse where it says, um, you know, the guest said, you've saved the best for last. Usually it's the the bad wine that's given at the end because everybody stuff is coming out. Yeah. Tipsy and drunk and they don't know what tastes, you know, they're like, ah, oh, it tastes good. And I think definitely we are, we always are um, in need of thoughtfulness when we approach, whether it's our alcohol or our conversation, like thoughtfulness is key. And then I do think the church doesn't I think back, like, why are Baptists so weird about alcohol? And what what does that come from? And I think anything that might alter your mind in a way that you can be open and hear the spirit in a new way, I don't think they want us to do because then we're less likely to stay in lockstep with this system that is really a way for them whoever they are, whoever's in charge of the system to just be more in charge and more powerful. And um, that doesn't feel thoughtful or authentic to me at all. You're bringing to mind this Frederick Buechner quote, uh, 
from wishful thinking, the, the book where he just defines all these different words. Um, and so for wine, this is what Frederick Buechner wrote about wine. Unfermented grape juice is a bland and pleasant drink, especially on a warm afternoon mixed half and half with ginger ale. It is a ghastly symbol of the lifeblood of Jesus Christ, especially when served in individual antiseptic thimble-sized glasses. Wine <laughs> is booze, which means it is dangerous and drunk-making. It makes the timid brave and the reserved amorous. It loosens the tongue and breaks the ice, especially when served in a loving cup. It kills germs. As symbols go, it is a rather splendid one. Ah, oh, <laughs> that's beautiful. That's good that, stuff, huh? That's beautiful. All yes. right, ready, B. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I would say Frederick Peter kept me going in the whole faith thing for a lot longer than I probably would have without him. And I'm not necessarily upset about that. Yeah. No, that's that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing it with me. And I think it he's spot on. You know, if it can't be controlled, I think the system doesn't want it. Well, I, I think the other part of what what you talk about with the longer tables and you and I have had this fantasy for years now about getting to set some long tables together. Um, I, I still am in the Jesus tradition. I still find that the, that language and stories to be an access point to, to truth for me. Um, and I am fascinated by the most aggressive we see Jesus get is flipping tables in the temple mm -hmm. and how essential it is to understand that against all these other tables where he found himself the table where you know Pharisees are complaining why does he eat with all of these sinners going to Zacchaeus's house to have lunch with him the table where you know a woman of questionable reputation comes and pours oil on his feet all of these tables where mm -hmm. It's not about rules and it's not about the structure and it's not about the system. It's about the love that's being embodied there. Um, but then he's furious about these tables that are too small, that are too elite. And yes. those are the ones that he rages against. Um, so I find myself asking often, where am I still setting tables that are too small? Mm. And what are the ones that I need to be flipping right now? Yeah. Because white church, even in 2023, continues to feel elite and private and small. And I feel sometimes like I'm looking through a window and I see you out in a field under these trees having a wonderful party. <laughs> and I'm, I'm trapped inside the building and I want to come outside. Um, yeah, I want you to come outside and I like whatever that means for you. And I also recognize that it's a process and that, you know, we, sometimes we just walk out the door quickly, but sometimes it's a slow exit. And I honor, I don't know, I honor what the individual needs in the moment that they need it. And, um, but I, I want to be the person in the field saying, Hey, we sat you a table, you know, we sat you a seat at this table and you're welcome. Yeah, it's a great field. That's I love your your vision of me. <laughs> <laughs> In that yellow dress from those recent headshots that I saw. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, 
I'm, I want to be mindful of time. I think that we're probably at an hour at this point. I have shared with you and in the first episode, so you're really the second episode, but you're the first guest. So in the first episode of the podcast, I quote Krista Tippett, who says, religion is as cup and spirituality is as water. Mm-hmm. That there are these vessels, some of them are cracked and damaged and imperfect, but the mm-hmm. point of the vessel is to access and share the water. I have lamented the ways in which I know I have been a vessel keeper rather mm-hmm. than someone who is seeking this water and settling for a cup when I could have been swimming in an ocean. Mm. I wonder what your thoughts are on what keeps people stuck, even if the vessel isn't working anymore. Most definitely fear. I think the fear of not being a part of the system, you know, but I don't think you'd call it like, if you're thinking, why am I still here? Though someone is, I don't, think they would say fear of not being a part of the system. I think you just think fear of not belonging or fear. It's just fear because we don't know. It's the what if. And it's the, like, if you think about it, the way you just, the word picture I'm getting, like that Krista Tippett said, like there's this cup and it's the carrier. But then how would she describe like an ocean? Like yeah. you don't need a cup for the ocean. You're just in it. and. I, I think it's that fear of like, we think it's a cup, but it's really an ocean. And so we think if we don't, if we're not a part of this cup, then we've lost out on, um, the spirit. But I think, I don't think it's true. So is it fear? Is it a lie? It's probably all of it. (laughs) Like we, it's the unknown, but I'm, I'm here to tell you that it's, it's not a cup, it's an ocean. And it's okay that it doesn't have the form that you think it would have. Like it's, there's just so much that, that we've been taught doesn't exist, but it does. I don't even know how to say it. It's like, I don't know. I've seen beyond the matrix or something. And and that gets gets to the final question. I want to ask you what exists beyond religion? (laughs) I mean, relationships and authenticity, and it's not like it's free from heartache, but all uh, freedom, freedom, like um, becoming who we are supposed to be, like being the representative of God that we need to be in this world, or, you know, we just already are like, like, my God, like we are creations, we're humans, we are these incredible miracles, regardless of how, how one might think how we came to be in this world, like just the mere fact that you passed through a body, and you were like, formed and like, wacky shit doesn't make any sense. But we're here and we're talking and like, I can go over and turn on my light switch and the light will come on. I don't understand it. Like somebody probably does. But I don't know. Maybe that's an old metaphor from church. I just pulled up. But, <laughs> I hope um, that it is. I hope that it is. Um, yeah. I mean, what I hear in that is some of the essence of what religion offered and taught us, but without the gatekeepers and without the 
supervisors and editors saying, no, 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 it's like this. Oh, no, 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 that was too big. Oh, no, 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 you have to be smaller. Oh, no, you must submit. And how often I think I heard that, I mean, maybe this is another way to answer it. Like so often it was all about the greater good, you know, in church life. Like this, we can't tell that because that could offend, you know, it's about the greater good. Like, you know, something might happen to you personally, but you're encouraged not to share that because then it could disrupt the donor that is, you know, it's like for the greater good, let's not, let's not hold person A accountable for these actions because it's for the greater good of really power and money in the church, but it's for the greater um, good of protecting the vessel. Yes. Yes. And I think the greater good is on the outside of the vessel. Like that's what's on, that's what's beyond is actually the greater good, not, not keeping it safe and insular and all of those things. So, but I do, I do think people still want relationships and they want to gather authentically. I just don't think it has to be in a building that you only use twice a week. Um, but you can gather without, you can gather without a planning committee. Yeah, you can. You most definitely can. And we should. And if you want to be a part of a club, then join a club. Like, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I went too far. <laughs> no, I'm with you. I'm with you. I am. And um, I'm going to keep watching in on your party out in the field. And I hope <laughs> you make it to your table one of these days. Well, I, I, you will. And, um, I feel like I should have brushed up on my, my Bible. You know, it's so funny how, I mean, it's been 10 years and th- I just don't remember things anymore. You know, I could have and told I you. Am, chapter I have for- a rotten memory. And so I am such a Googler and <laughs> yeah, I look a lot of stuff up and my Nathan will, will tell a story. I'm like, that's not in the Bible. And he just stares at me like, you should know this. Wow. Um, yeah, well, so I'm in there too. I was, I'm there. But I, so I say this with trepidation because I'm not sure I'm going to remember it completely. But back to Rachel, and I just close with this. You know, she and Jacob and Leah, they fled, you know, in the night to get away from her dad and from all that. So, you know, they're leaving. She's pregnant. And she takes her dad's, um, one of his, God, why can't I think of what that's called? Like a terrapin or, you know, like a God, like an idol. She took an idol and because it was, it, it felt comfortable to her. It was something that she could take with her. And remember, he like says, do you have it? And she said, no. And she won't stand up. And she says, I'm, I'm on my period. I'm unclean. I can't, but she's like sitting on it and she wouldn't give it back to him. Mm-hmm. And she took it with her on this journey. And I think that's what I want you to do. That's what I want me to do. That's what I want anybody who's saying like, what's beyond this cup, you know, that I'm in, like, take what you need because it's yours. Take it with you. Like the, the system doesn't get to own all of it, you know? So the things that I was taught and that I learned and that such a huge part of who I am because of this 
life and work within a church doesn't all have to be bad. And I'm going to take my, my piece of it and I'm not going to give it back. So. I love that. Alongs with me. Well, thank you for your time and for the, all of the bazillion ways you are so generous with your heart. You are, you are such a generous friend who gives and gives without thinking about receiving like you're not it's not a one for one like I sent you this thing now you send me something it's just this <laughs> generous extravagant love and showing up and it's um and I find the way you show up to be transformational um so I, I wow. hope you know about yourself that's really um thank you for saying that that's nice to hear I would hope so. I hope I want, that's who I want to be. It's so easy, you know, to be that way. So why not? (laughs) Well, I will drop in the show notes links to Campcraft Cocktail so people can follow along and buy some merch and get some kits and follow you on Instagram and all the socials. Okay. Uh, It has been great, Susanna Raffield, talking with you for the past hour. Thank you, Elizabeth Lott. I've enjoyed being with you as well. We're so fancy and formal. True. I could have thrown in your maiden name, but I didn't. I've been at this podcasting thing for merely weeks now, and I found it to be really fun and simple. I got started with the help of Spotify for Podcasters. Spotify for Podcasters is an all-in-one podcast platform built for everyone. Even if you're already producing somewhere else, switching is easy and unlocks video podcasts on Spotify. Spotify for Podcasters also includes RSS distribution, 24-7 creator support, and monetization in select markets, all for free. If you're a first-time podcaster like me, it's intuitive as you learn to navigate the platform, and Spotify for Podcasters makes it simple to share your creativity across other podcasting platforms. And if you're already paying for another platform, you can redirect your feed to Spotify for free today. Go to podcasters.spotify.com to get started.